0: Hello, and welcome to Tales from the Ruther Library, podcast coming to you from the Walter P. Ruther Library at Wayne State University in the heart of Detroit, Michigan. I am Dan Galladner, your host, and across the world wide web, about two miles away, maybe even a mile, is Troy Eller English. Hi, Troy. How are things over there?
1: I'm fantastic, Dan. How are you?
0: Oh, just lovely. Hunkering down again with this pandemic. Now, you, you've been, you got the first round. Oh, I did.
1: I did. It was very exciting.
0: How did your arm feel?
1: It was a little sore for a few days, but it was fine. Not as bad as the flu shot.
0: I was really sore. I've never been sore from a shot. And that was like two days. And then when I think all you all were getting your shots a week later, I got the COVID arm. Oh. Which it flared up again where I got the injection. And um, I think it was sympathy for you guys.
1: Maybe. Maybe Mm -hmm. because,
0: like, if a third of the staff all got it on one day, so So I was feeling your pain, man. (laughs) (laughs) Now, folks, in the beginning of the pandemic, we started to hear about frontline workers that basically we took for granted, like grocery store workers, those that deliver food, janitors, restaurant workers. Um, We saw their pictures, we heard their stories, but there was one sector of the economy that remained invisible. And those are the domestic workers. Worldwide, there are about 67 million domestic workers and 80% are women. In the U.S., there are about 2.2 million domestic workers. And according to the National Domestic Workers Alliance, 90% of those workers lost their jobs during the pandemic. They clean, they cook, they take care of children and the elderly family members, often without a contract and with poor legal protection. Now, despite being... That frontline workers of the COVID pandemic, they're rarely part of the response plans. This sector of the workforce have for over a hundred years been fighting to get recognition, respect, and included in labor standards and protections. So, on this episode, we talked with author Jane Little Botkin about her latest book, The Girl Who Dared to Defy Jane Street. And the rebel maids of denver which describes a fiery woman who persevered and a woman she formed for domestic workers in the early 20th century in denver colorado this biography opens another door in labor and women's history that is so well researched well jane will tell us more in the podcast about her research now the girl who defied who dared to defy is a biography about jane street which follows her life from indiana california and colorado And along the way, how she became radicalized to become an organizer for the industrial workers of the world. She founded and ran Denver's Domestic Workers Local Number 113 of the IWW. Jane Street stood up to the big business of Denver. She challenged free speech and faced the IWW patriarchy. And this local that she founded was outstanding. It was a hiring hall that listed the good housewives and bad housewives. It had childcare, and it was a safe haven for women who worked for the elite of Denver. To sum up how domestic workers were treated, Street said, quote, of all the abused people on earth, none is worse treated than the general housemaid. The majority of housewives follow an aged tradition of looking down on those who serve them and their families and refuse to practice patience or give counsel or regard the women they hire as human beings. And all Jane wanted was to bring dignity to those who were invisible. Now, Jane Little Botkin, who wrote the book, was a public school teacher for 30 years in Texas and then caught the historical investigation and writer's book. She has won the Spur Award from the Western Writers of America twice, and her book Frank Little and the IWW, The Blood That Stained an American Family, won numerous awards. And oh, by the way, it's her great-granduncle, was Frank Little, so she got a little bug that way, too. If you want to know more about Botkin, her website is janelittlebotkin, all one dot com. And as always, if you want to know more labor history or hear what is going on with current labor and workers' issues, please visit laborradionetwork.org. That's all one word as well. So sit back and enjoy this episode about Jane Street, the girl who dared to defy. Well, hello. Thank you so much for joining us on the Tales from the Ruther. How are you doing?
1: I'm doing well, thank you.
0: Excellent, excellent. First thing that I always like to ask, because we have so many researchers that used to come into the Ruther, but we still communicate with them as well. What inspires them to do their research? So I'm going to ask you, what inspired you to write this book?
1: You know, uh, even beginning with Frank Little and the IWW, which was my first book, it's The Family Connection. And with Jane Street, it actually was a family connection. It, it, with a girl that dared to, who dared to defy, she was an extension of Frank Little. Frank was one of the few men who seemed to have this empathy for women at that time. The IWW was inclusive; it was for all genders and all ethnicities and trades. But even though they welcomed women, women really didn't have a strong role unless you were one of the Easterners like Matilda Robbins or Elizabeth Gurley Flynn, who's probably the most famous. But Western women generally uh, played no very small roles, um, if any, and they weren't even included in literature. And Frank had actually... um, wanted to have the literature had actually gone to a conference and gone to a GEB a general executive board meeting with the IWW and requested to include women's literature and he was voted down but I found that he had actually helped Jane organize and that just fascinated me and then there was so there was a family connection with Frank that translated to Jane and then there was another family connection Um, I'm very into my own family genealogy and my grandmother, who was the daughter of um, a first-generation Danish immigrant, my great-grandmother, who was married to a mining superintendent in Louisville, Colorado, uh, at the time of the, the Colorado Coal Wars in 1903 and 1904, they lived in Louisville, and um, he, the, the stepfather, because his name was Gradel, he was actually, he, he accidentally shot himself hunting, pulling the gun out backwards. And my great-grandmother died of pneumonia. And my grandmother was left an orphan at 13 years old in Louisville, Colorado. Some men came from Iowa, Scandinavians came down, grabbed my grandmother, took her back up to Iowa, and she was married off at 16 years old to a man who was 32 years old, uh, a Swedish immigrant. And I didn't know this for years. I I just discovered it about the time I was researching Frank. And as it turned out, uh, my grandmother ran away and she she ran away and at 17, 18 years old, showed back up in Boulder, Colorado, which is right near Louisville. And she went to work in a mansion on Pine Street. I drove by the mansion. I didn't know it was a mansion. I did a field trip, drove by there, and it was an enormous house, enormous mansion. And I had postcards where she used that address. And I thought, oh, she was working here as a servant. When I went to research in the Denver Public Library, they have wonderful librarians on the fifth floor where the Western history genealogical research is. And this fella told me, he says, well, you know, there's an old adage that in Scandinavia, with Scandinavians, immigrants, that good girls become maids. So if you didn't get married, you could go work as a servant in somebody's house. And that was fine. And I thought, wow. And at the same time, my grandmother was this maid, the same age that Jane had been, when she unfortunately got involved with a 32-year-old man, much to her undoing. There were so many parallels. That was the time Jane was organizing in Denver. And I thought, wow, my grandmother knew about this. This, this was important. So I had a two-fold or 2 prong attack there on, on why I wanted to do Jane Street. And I just got into it. There, it was a challenge. There wasn't anything about it. Just one letter that uh the Elmer brews letter that had been recently I, back in the 1970s discovered uh in the n a r a it had been hidden way down in there national archives uh and but that was it they knew the con- it's a wonderful letter lots of context in that letter, but that wasn't the story and what I found out was the story was so much more in depth, so many parallels to today with uh u two movement and um You know, it just, it was just fascinating. So it didn't take me long to do the research because uh, I was able to ferret out the facts. And because of your library and other libraries who had these collections, I knew where to look. And then I went into the Bureau of Investigation Files, which is today is the FBI as we know it. And I was really good at researching there because of Frank Little. And there was a huge dossier on Jane and no one knew this information. And then, of course, I used Ancestry.com and I found Jane's family and found out she was a writer, you know, and she collected everything. She didn't toss anything. So I really was a lucky person as far as a researcher goes.
0: Seriously, you're able to dive into the FBI files as well as contact the family. And they had a tons of stuff laying, I, I imagine, stored somewhere, but they, they opened, up, they opened yeah. it up
1: for you. Oh, they yeah. did. And they, they knew nothing about her life until 1939. And I have been able to fill that part in. I mean, they knew who her parents were and where she was from, but they didn't know this sordid tale of what had happened to her in Arkansas that prompted her to go to California and then end up in Colorado. They didn't even know how that had happened.
0: Well, that was the interesting thing, too, how you opened up the book. Not only I knew I was in for a ride when you opened up with the Ludlow Massacre stuff. It's like, okay, we're going to get serious here. But you did also talk about how she lived in Arkansas. And her and her sister just picking up and leaving and going to the West. What, was this kind, Was this common for most women, some no. women to just like leave? I like really,
1: really thought about this. And the thing is, I have to go back again to my grandmother, my great-grandmother. My great-grandmother, the one who was the Danish immigrant, was running around the Western states until she was almost 30 years old with another girl. And in fact, my family, we don't know very little about her. Uh, we th- They think she might've been a prostitute actually uh, in Colorado and in the mining camps. And then she ended up marrying a miner who actually died on the Klondike trail. And then she remarried this mining superintendent, but she was running around. She went to Spokane. She was in South Dakota. She was in Colorado. I found her in Colorado Springs. So I think immigrant women, had a different mentality when it came to traveling and searching for work. Whereas your well-bred American women, oh, no, you know, you have to have a chaperone with you. Uh, Now, Jane wasn't an immigrant, but she was a product of a family that was fairly broken. Her mother was very, very depressed, very despondent. There had been a number of deaths in the family and her father had died. And so she has a sister who has no qualms being a cooch dancer, basically, in in burlesque, you know, comes home. And Jane, it's just not a problem. Um, So I think she, and I also think she had to leave. Um, Readers will find out that she was um, basically ensnared by a fellow that uh, obviously, had problems with women. He was 32, and she w- he had started grooming her, truly grooming her like a pedophile would. When she was, let's see, they got uh, married, I think, when she was about 18. She was younger than that. He stepped right in where the, when the father had left, and he ha- also was a bigamist. He was married and had a was having a baby at the same time. He got Jane pregnant. So here you have this woman who is a teenager. She gets pregnant. She doesn't have a stable background. Uh, and then she finally gets him to marry her, but he's already married. And so w- how embarrassing that is. And you can't imagine that that little town in Arkansas, that people didn't know all of this. She had to leave.
0: She had to. And yeah.
1: her sister Grace was the catalyst. Grace saw vaudeville in California. And, you know, that's where you go. So two, <laughs> girls, traveling, two girls traveling together was not so difficult. But I think there definitely there is a difference between the immigrant women who did go out and search. And I, I also bring up um, the Chicago Fire when all those women, the Scandinavian women left, you know, single women left and came to Denver to work as servants because Denver needed maids. And that was in the 1870s. So I that think, is something I didn't know.
0: That was sure? interesting about the Chicago what fire. Yeah.
1: But that's kind of a different uh, view on things. So,
0: yeah. yeah. Uh, the immigration em- em- inside the United States of mm-hmm. women th- searching for work because, There's one, the men are dying early most of the time, working in mines, getting in fires and stuff like that. So they had to travel and stuff. And another so
1: thing, what- a lot of the women at that time, especially in the West, you have to understand their options were few. If they were married, the only thing they could pretty much do is run a boarding house. You weren't even allowed to teach school. And so for working women, it was, it was quite difficult. You had to marry well, or, you know, you were, you were a servant. Mm-hmm.
0: So, All right. Jane, Jane Leaves, Arkansas. What is waiting for her and her sister on the West coast when they arrive, let's say they arrive in Sacramento, then they move into, they, they leave Sacramento and California head towards the Rocky mountain state of Colorado. Well, what is waiting for them there?
1: In, in in Sacramento, um what reader what people will be surprised to find out because every time you look up Jane Street, it says she was a maid, and she wasn't a maid at all. She got a high school education and got and became a stenographer. She had stenography training. And so that's the first misconception or first untruth that's been repeated quite a bit from people who don't know anything. And I didn't know it either. So she does get her, she does work as a stenographer in California for a couple of years before she heads, well, actually for almost five years before she heads to Colorado. And it's in California that she became indoctrinated with the IWW. Now, they did not get her to Denver. Um, what happened was the Ludlow Massacre. And the the for people who don't know what the Ludlow Massacre was, it was a tent colony of Italians and Greeks and other minorities uh, near Trinidad, Walsenburg, Colorado. And they had struck against Rockefeller, JD Rockefeller's uh, coal company, coal mining company. And because they were striking, they were thrown out of the company housing. And so they had to set up these tents and the people were just barely surviving. There were uh, between 200 and 300 children involved, about 1200 people altogether. And uh, Rockefeller's goons called in the National Guard, and the Colorado National Guard plays an important role in actually in this book and a lot of the men who were part volunteers with the colorado Guard Colorado National Guard were family members. They were spouses of uh, these heavy families in Denver and Colorado Springs, these well-to- do families, and even the um the commander was an ophthalmologist in denver, and so Some of these men actually do leave before the Ludlow Massacre, but these gun thugs come in and they bring a Gatling gun in and they bring it in on a train that is also Rockefeller owned and they mow down people in this tent colony. And uh, some women and and 11 children, two women, 11 children actually die as a result of this hiding themselves in this pit below their, their tent. So when this happened, it made national national news. There was a huge outcry on this. And this was something that Rockefeller really couldn't hide from. This was, this was not like the other labor events that had happened. He he couldn't escape this one. And, um, and he was making lots of excuses, believe me. And at the same time, the women, the wives of these husbands, who had been part of the same National Guard unit, whose husbands may or may not have been directly involved with Ludlow, were making excuses for their husbands, and they were condemning these women. They were basically saying, oh, you know, they were just minors women. They were just, it's just like they were no better than dogs. And it's a good thing they died. We didn't need them. That made the news. And so Jane is sitting in in California, and Elizabeth Gurley Flynn is making her rounds across the nation speaking Ludlow has happened and Flynn is speaking about Ludlow and about how all women should be upset about this. It doesn't matter if you're on the elite Capitol Hill in Denver or you're an immigrant wife, everybody should be outraged. And she had that quote that the queen of the kitchen has nothing in common with the maid. I'm sorry, the queen of the parlor has nothing in common with the maid of the kitchen. And that was a profound statement that was repeated and it hit Jane's ears. The men that were in the local where uh, Jane was in Sacramento, they, they didn't care about this. this. This was not significant. And so she was truly a pioneer in having to organize um, this group of women because no one had organized like this before. There had been cannery strikes in, you know on the West Coast, lots of stri- strikes in the, the industries where garments were made, but nothing like this. And so she couldn't organize the same way. So I don't know. Jack Street, who was her husband, shows up in Denver. I'm not sure if that prompted her to go or if if it was doubly because of what happened in Ludlow. I think it was more the fact that she was starting her activism. And Flynn is known as the rebel girl. And lots of women are trying to emulate her. And because Jane, when she reaches Denver, her feet hit the ground running. She immediately gets a job as a maid to find out what it's like. She's got to establish her creds and she works for three months as a maid. And having Jack Street there, well, he could babysit because she did have a little little boy. They had a son together. So that's what she does. Grace is there with her. Grace, her sister opens up a music school. So the two sisters are there again together. And I, I, I think that was what it was. Jane didn't know about any deficiencies as far as a servant. She didn't know everything else that we find out about the, that particular class of people. It's what happened in Ludlow. And she's going to punish these women on Capitol Hill. She is. <laughs> but yeah, you, you, you mentioned, you, you
0: touched on this. What she organized, when she organized the local in Denver, mm-hmm. she didn't just organize a union. No. she what she did what i found when i was reading this about what she did was like remarkable because not only was she breaking down the isolation of domestic workers which reminded me because i when i at the reuther i deal with the teacher unions mm-hmm. and when they were allowed to bargain collectively when they had a union the biggest thing they had talked about was the isolation of the teacher and so this reminded me again a very female organization a very female institution being isolated and what jane did was break down that isolation and she was giving also what she did with the union it seemed to me was that she was giving them also their worth back
1: yes well and you know, so there was one, one line I, I that i wrote in the book where I, I was it was actually it actually happened i used the description exactly what was said and what the room was like and it was one of her organizational meetings Where these maids are sitting there looking at her thinking, oh, my gosh, who is she? Can we really rebel? I mean, we're not supposed to do that. You know, if you're a servant, you don't rebel. You just do what you're told. And here she's telling them, oh, sure you can. And they just, it seems surreal and illegal. You know, they'll they'll be arrested for this. And so she broke down that barrier. And I thought that she actually, you know, she gave them, she enabled them. And so she was the supreme enabler. And, and it was her organizational skills that and it got her there to where she could do this. So.
0: Yeah, she had a unique way of organizing. Mm-hmm. Um, so could you, could you elaborate more on what the Domestic Workers Industrial Union was about? You know, why, why are we talking about how unique this is? Because in 1960, 1907, you didn't hear or see about, read about these kind of unions, really, of what she created.
1: You know, on both fronts, you don't hear about this because uh, they were just kind of like non-people. You have all these elite mistresses who live on Capitol Hill, and for listeners, Capitol Hill was or is It was the most elite area to live in in Denver. It was one of the highest perspectives. So you could look down on the rest of the poor people working there in Denver. They were mine owners or there were companies that were associated with the mine owners, people that made their money on the front range in the mining camps. And the mansions were between 6,000, 7,000 square feet. And on average, they had about four servants per mansion. And this class of people that was working for them were just a step above I later found out from a labor study, really considered a step above prostitution. And in fact, if the girls were thrown out of a job, sometimes that's what they had to turn to because, and and then you had also going on there, these employment agencies that were in cahoots with the employers. So much like the logging camps and the mining camps and everything else in the West, you would go to a, they call them sharks. You would go to this employee, it's employment agency, you'd pay them a dollar and they would find you a job. And so, and then with the men, it was, you know, you'd have a job for about a month and you'd be fired because again, this was part of the plot. You'd have to pay another dollar to get back there again. So the employment agencies were really making money and Jane knew that. And so what she did that was different was she offered, she offered to act as an employment agency. And that was her undoing on one front because the employment agencies that were already regular real employment agencies who were sharks, uh, they didn't like this at all. And so they had to take her out. So that was one of the prongs of the attack against her. So she, she had to act like she was an employer. And so she came up with a scheme where she would post uh, a job looking, f- she would, she would post that she had a job for a maid and she would describe all of that. And at the same time, she would look for other want ads for servants. And so a girl would contact her through the mail, because there was no telephone generally. And she would say, Yes, I'm I'm interested in that job. Then Jane would look at the jobs that were in the paper that she got calls back from these mistresses who said they needed, and she'd match the girl with the job. Well, in doing so, she met these women that she had to meet them. And so as she met them and she'd start talking about them, she'd start asking them to take notes. And pretty soon, pretty soon, she was able to advertise meetings, saying, "You know, just come. We're going to organize." And oh, she had in three months, she started moving pretty quickly on on getting this organization to join. And because of her organizational skills, she always maintained these file systems. She had these personal systems. Actually, we found out later from her son, her grandson. But they started making a card on every one of the employers, these mistresses uh, in Denver and especially Capitol Hill. What kind of mistress was she? How did she treat her servants? How much were you paid? You know, how much time did you get off? Did you have to work on Sundays? Um, Were there children in the house? How big is the house? What were you expected to do? And then later they added, uh, and what is, what is her husband's business? Because when these women would refuse to pay the maids, Jane had an attorney who would go file on or show up on these husbands' doorsteps who were members of the Chamber of Commerce. And that didn't look too good. And Jane would get, Jane would get her money, get the girl's money. Nice. So she kept modifying that. It first was called a blacklist system. Because by the time these women had filled in these names, and there were thousands of names by this time, you could pull up a card and say, oh, I'm not going to go work for her. And then these women, these mistresses on Capitol Hill who were not good women to work for, they couldn't get any help. And so once they found that out, they were unhappy. And so they were kind of coordinating with the the employment agencies at the same time to attack Jane. It
0: was brilliant. It was really brilliant. brilliant it was it was she had a unique way of organizing and she understood the nature of we need her today <laughs> yeah, we, <do. laughs> we need to
1: know more about what she did today and i think that that would be and i'm hoping this book will open up a little bit of that uh because we still have that situation today with a lot of the domestics they're still fighting there're different groups you know different groups of people today uh with all right. the new immigrants that we have from central america but they they need help
0: they do need right. help and 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 the help is that they they need to understand where they are, their, their role lies within not only working for a household but also mm-hmm. what their worth is for themselves mm-hmm. as well. because what was interesting too is like I really appreciate this in your book. you lay it out very nicely: the issues of women in that era. So you have the middle class women who are quote unquote bored and need something to find something to do to make them feel better because now they have more time to do things they start these agencies they start these clubs you have the very wealthy clubs whereas like we are the elite and you can Hill? yeah yeah the capitol hill but um but when you start talking about the ywca and how they came to jane oh. and said um we have We'd like to do a compromise. We don't want a union, but we don't want this either, but we want to help in some way. What did the YWCA do? And you uh, know, that... it kind of kind of did some things to her
1: organization as well. They did, but you know what's funny about the YWCA? They were and I didn't realize that. Harriet, Harriet Roloffs, or I think it's pronounced Roloffs, it's R-O-E-L-O-F-S, good German word, maybe Raylof. <laughs> um she um she wanted to make this into a science and, and you know and this is where we get home economics and classes later you know so you you had uh industrial and then you had the home economics for like housewives and so she's real for all this and she sees jane street and these 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 capital women she actually goes to denver because she's from the east coast comes to denver to help these women with the quote servant problem and she says, you know, I we can work this out between both groups. This is our chance to edu- educate and raise up the servant girls and at the same time educate these women on how they should be treating them like employees where you have a certain number of hours that you work, you have days off and that sort of thing. And of course, that didn't go real well with the housewives because they didn't want to change their, you know, archaic system of having a slave type servants. And they looked down their noses at them, besides that. But Jane saw through this because she, she was, actually, the, the IWW was already resisting any kind of, quote, scientific processes. I mean, these had started with um, tailorization, when you had assembly line workers, and so you get your artisans that are thrown out of work, people who, who had pride in their handwork that they did for companies. and. So already they're, they're very suspicious of anything that is, quote, scientific. And to think that you're putting being a how, how to be a domestic as a scientific process was what the YWCA was doing. And Jane said, I don't I don't want any part of that. I don't I don't. I, she was interested in education. She was always one who wanted to learn more. And she did. She took classes later in life, but she didn't want to be locked down with a boss. And of course, that's a an IWW. Uh, mantra too. There there are no bosses. And so she said, no, they tried to get her to show up. She did not show up, which was a big shock for her. She sent a couple of men who were thrown out of this meeting, but the maids all sat there. And and of course the newspapers reported this particular meeting exactly what it was. And once again, the housewives were embarrassed and the YWCA did not get what they wanted. And Harriet took back, went back to the East coast. And that was that
0: that was it yeah
1: it was that it. was that
0: that was that um, but all right, your, your your book does have so many different layers though there's so much into it is you're dealing with the wobblies you're dealing with the national guard you're dealing with the state government everything like that but what and i don't want to give away too much from your book <laughs> but we is a lot of intrigue there is a lot of dealing with sex there is a lot of dealing with traveling what do you hope readers will get out of this book When they look at this book, when they see what's going on today, what do you, what caused you to take up?
1: You know, this may surprise you, but really, you know, while I was researching and writing this book, there were the Kavanaugh hearings were going on. The uh, U2 movement was really, really strong. It's funny how we as Americans, like right now it's cancel culture. You have something that is moving through the country and we kind of overdo it. And the thing about Jane is she wasn't a victim. And I, I remember during that time when the Kavanaugh hearings were going on, you did, another victim said this, another victim said this, or how many people, women are victims? Um, I, I was sexually um, assaulted when I was a child. And I, I think that probably a, a lot of women have been, and they can tell you similar stories. Um, but I never saw myself as a victim. And and Jane didn't. And I think the thing that what I want, I I think that what really speaks to her is despite the fact that she was sexually assaulted, she had horrible relationships with men. She wanted love. She wanted to be a mother. She wanted to do all those things and be a, a revolutionist for the IWW. And they weren't quite allowing her to do that and be a mother, too. And the fact that she was betrayed time and time again, often by the very men she worked with, um, much to her undoing and in later in life, she never saw herself as a victim. And even in that Elmer Bruce letter, she'll tell you that when love comes through, what is it when love comes through the door, you know, your organization goes right out the window. I'm just warning you, you've got to steer clear of the men but she doesn't ever tell what happened to her and you don't see her having a pity party she just picked herself back up and she found another way to go after her goals and to support these women i mean there are many things that happened to her without as you say without giving this away in the book i admire that more than anything as far as the book i think that's a personal thing that women should see uh that the victimhood does not get you anywhere you need to be a fighter and she mm-hmm. was a fighter as far as um, the other broader issue of the book, when I, and I just briefly talked about this, the, this is an issue still going on today. As far as organizing or getting rules and laws to protect domestics, uh, the number of hours they work, if they get paid time and time and a half, I mean, medical benefits. These are things that nobody thinks of. They just don't. I mean, you. A lot of people, you know, you hire a maid, you just pay her and that's that. So and I know this from the West. Now, I don't know how it is in the West Coast. I was raised in El Paso and we had Mexican maids. And and I can tell you, you know, there was a Mexican wage and there was a regular wage. And you certainly ignored anything that had to do with how many hours they worked or benefits. I mean, if you bought your maid a 25-cent bus ticket back to Juarez, then you were doing good. And I think a lot of those attitudes in the West continued because uh, Western women used indigenous women and Mexican-American or Mexican women as their, and, and in the South, they were the black women that were used as nannies and servants, or they were actual slaves. And I think that, you know, while we've gone beyond that, we've really gone beyond that. We have a whole new class of people coming in who are working, you know, from the Honduras or wherever they're coming from. And you're seeing kind of the same thing again.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So I think there's a lesson there too. And, and the work is being done on that front. So
0: there are the, the, the working centers that have been set up and the domestic worker centers have, who have been created in Chicago, New York, and elsewhere. They are constantly lobbying to change the laws because yeah. domestic workers were excluded from all the NLRB, all the labor all, laws, everything.
1: All yeah. the labor laws. It was shocking that they were excluded. You know, yeah. uh, workman's comp, they didn't include housemaid servants
0: you know yeah anyway so but yes your message is quite clear within the book and also jane yeah i agree with you completely she never took herself as a victim she kept moving forward mm-hmm. until finally you know she was like picking up jobs here and there just to keep her yeah, children just to right. keep her kids happy and alive and loved you mm-hmm. know it was it was truly amazing you know the end when the last couple of chapters of her life yeah and that- we won't say anymore yeah <laughs>
1: The epilogue, I think, uh, the epilogue of the book, I think, is probably the most important chapter in the book.
0: Yeah, me too. It
1: ties it all together, and and you really see what she did and and then who she became.
0: Exactly, exactly. I know, I agree. Um, All right, on our podcast, we always love to hear where people have been and what they've seen at the Ruther Library, as well
1: as other archives. At the Ruther Library, uh, I first attained my files working for Frank Little in the IWW, hoping there would be a lot on Frank. Again, that was another one where, you know, Frank was had really been written about, but all of it was wrong. <laughs> it was incorrect. <laughs> you know, so I had to fix that. And I also, as a family member, I had to, uh, not a, a professor, I had to prove my creds. And so I basically made sure that I was going to those primary documents. And if somebody had written something, I would see what they, where they'd gotten it. And then I went to that source instead of just copying it. So that took me to the Walter Ruther Library and to some files. And Fred Thompson's collection uh, was invaluable. Um, Of course, there was nothing in there about Jane. However, he had lots of correspondence. Some of it had to do with Joe Hill. And I do get into the music part of this in the book. Uh, because there is, uh, Jane had her own song called The Maid's Defiance that they collaboratively wrote, and I wanted to know if there was more music that had to do with that, and of course I'm going back to the good old boys, they were just good old boys and what all they did, but um, Joe Hill is actually in the book, and again it was research that I had primarily done through Elizabeth Gurley Flynn and in Walter Ruther, but the collection that really helped me was, um, It was the IWW collection, and it was Bill Haywood's trial transcripts, and I read every page, and oh my goodness, I was able to get correspondence because they would read it. It would be one of the documents that the lawyers would present. I found out about Frank, his relationship with Jane. I found out about how Haywood felt about Jane, Richard Brazier, how he felt about Jane. It just tied so much together. I also had the firsthand accounts from the trial testimony on the on the uh, Frank's murder and on uh, which also I was able to pull in. Um, so there was enormous information from that. And again, I, I cross checked everything. But, you know, when you're looking at the correspondence, that's pretty much the, the words you want. You can't count on the newspapers at that time because they were company owned. You just can't count on newspapers. They're just not going to tell you everything that's accurate, depending on who owns the company. But um, then I used um, the Bisbee deportation collection. Again, that's another collection that I had discovered when I was writing Frank Little in the IWW. Yes, I do have a chapter in the book that's in Bisbee. Jane met Frank in Bisbee, hoping he could help her. So you get that family connection again. It's very powerful. And it was just actually it was just like maybe six weeks or not even that before Frank was murdered. in in Butte, Montana. The Joseph Labati collection at the University of Michigan have wonderful photographs and they're free. So that was that was nice (laughs) because I could find my photos and all I had to do was contact Julie Herrada there and no problem I was able to get the photos. This was not a collection but The University of Washington has a new program. It's called the IWW project. They didn't have that when I was researching for Frank Little, but you can go in there and you can look at a map of the United States on the IWW collection. They have every local that they have discovered by reading every document newspaper that they can about when that local formed, the number of it, what trade it was and what city it was in. There's some uh, inconsistencies from what I found out as far as Jane's uh, trade. She was the first one, Um, but she did cause some other locals to be formed. But that was extremely important uh, information. And one of the photographs that I got from the University of Washington Actually, I knew exactly when it was. It was in Sacramento and I knew what year, I knew who it was. They didn't even know where the local was, but in which local it was, but in doing, it said clearly it, what local number they were, number 71. I knew exactly who it was. Um, the Western history and, Gene- Western and genealogical research floor at the Denver Public Library was awesome. Uh, there was a file on uh, Louise Need Heal who is the queen of Denver Society and actually started the Sacred 36. She was very naughty, and uh, she ruled Denver Society for years. And what's a fun part in this book is she wanted to be an ally of Jane's because her servants were so happily employed, and she just wanted to poke the rest of those stodgy women that were upset with Jane. And uh, Carolyn Bancroft, who was a journalist from Denver and actually became a member of the Sacred 36, Uh, had created a file that she donated to Denver Public Library. And it was just, it was wonderful. But when I went to the Stephen H. Hart uh, Library and Research Center, which is History Colorado, and that's the new name for the Colorado Historical Society, they had so much on women, on activists and suffragists, because they are proud of their women. Nice. They're very proud of their women. And they had files on every one of these women, these these mistresses and these club women, they all had files. They all had correspondence. So I could backtrack and look at their club meetings. I could read what plays they were producing. Louise Sneed Hill had a voluminous file. All of her correspondence, I could look at that. Um, I held Susan B. Anthony's letters in my hands. I mean, it was just wonderful. And I was Say that these women, the majority of them, really were suffragists or activists who wanted to help, and then there were those who just did it because they had leisure time, you know, felt like they were doing something good, you know it looked good, yeah. but the others they had their files, and I was able to go through those. They had nothing on Jane, and it they found out I was researching her, and I immediately was contacted by some professors who were very interested. they were doing a women their their mantra there is uh Bold women change history. And they have been doing a series of this of speakers on this. And they wanted to do a photo display with Jane. And they said, Well, do you even know when she was born? Oh, yeah, I know when she was <laughs> born. I know where she was born. I know everything about her. But um, I was able to give them that information. So, and I will also say that the Denver Public Library has a wonderful digital, digital uh photographs that can be used. So, I was able to get so much. And then you put that with the Bureau of Investigation files. It, I was really able to paint her life, put her, to, her put her life together. Oh, I'm missing the most important thing. I had all of her papers and they're sitting here right next to me. I've got all of her writings, all of her essays, all of her poetry. I even have her social security card, <laughs> um, which her grandson gave me as a gift. Right. Um, she had all, all of these writings. And when I finally met her grandson, who's in his eighties, he said, she did what? I just, <laughs> I didn't know. And you mean, he's not, he's, he's not the father of whatever. I mean, once you get these associations with their children, I mean, it was, and I can't wait to get this book in his hands. He doesn't have it
0: yeah. yet.
1: Oh, oh! I'm waiting there. They, they've, uh, OU press put out an embossed cloth cover accidentally, which is going to be the rare book. And now they're coming back with the one with a dust jacket on it. So those are being delivered all next week. So I'm going to get that into his hands.
0: Nice. That's like, you've done such a great favor for not only a woman that was, you know, just there's a footnote, but also for their, her family as well.
1: Yeah, you know? I, I'm tickled and I'm tickled to do that. Yeah, that's great.
0: That, is, that, that, that makes it all worthwhile, doesn't it?
1: Mm-hmm. It, it does. does.
0: Well, thank you, Jane, for uh, being on our podcast. We really appreciate it. You've given us a great story.
1: Thank you for having me. Tales from the Ruther Library is a production of the Walter P. Ruther Library of Labor and Urban Affairs at Wayne State University, coming to you from the heart of the Cultural Center of Detroit, Michigan. The producers of Tales from the Ruther Library are Dan Glogner and Troy Eller-English. Special assistants from the Ruther Podcast Collective, including Bart Bilmer, Elizabeth Clemens, Megan Courtney, and Paul Neering. Of course, this podcast could not be done without the research and the support of the entire Ruther Library staff. To learn more about the Ruther Library, or if you have any questions, please visit our website at www.ruther.wayne.edu. Thanks for listening! Say goodbye, Dan.
0: Goodbye, Dan. That is something I don't uh, I'm speechless. Finally.
1: Did you have extra coffee this morning? I I, or not too much coffee.
0: (laughs) That's it. Not too much. (laughs) I I stopped myself right before that edge of getting too hyper. And I'm drinking warm water. Up at the throat. You know, mm. this, that's you know, us DJs have to keep that throat uh, you know <laughs> nice and gum. <gone. laughs> <laughs> Add a little lemon, this mm-hmm. helps, you know. It's kinda, but it has to be warm. Cold is not good for your throat. All
1: right.
0: So they say All right.
1: See, we're uh we're a professional operation here.
0: Yes, we are. We are the most professional operation I've ever known to deliver a podcast to the World Wide Web.